you know the story. Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem with people lining the streets, cheering to him as he passed with shouts of Hosanna. And how quickly those cheers would change to jeers as a betrayal occurs. False charges abroad and a, and a brutal beating and murder are planned. And in the few days between these events, some amazing teaching takes place. It is during the evening meal just before the Passover festival that we see Jesus wash the feet of his disciples, a lesson, an example of serving others. He gives instructions on the practice that would become our tradition of communion, which we will celebrate this morning. And while sharing with his disciples that he would soon be leaving them, he provides these words of comfort found in John 16, 32-33. He says, A time is coming, in fact has come, when you will be scattered. Each to your own home, you will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. And he continues, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus' own words to you says you will have trouble. The Greek word is thalipsis, which means distress, affliction, oppression, right? Tribulation. This sounds like something more serious than just trouble, doesn't it? Jesus tells you you're going to experience distress and affliction and oppression and tribulation. Well... We do face troubles. In fact, we've uh, probably already learned that so far in our lives. But why do we face these things? Why, why do we go through them? We may never know for certain, but Scripture reveals some possible answers to us. You know, since our creation, and we've been talking about this the last couple of weeks, we have not been the model of obedience. Adam and Eve created their own trouble, which led to their expulsion from the garden. And more importantly, the removal from God's physical presence. This is one possible reason for the trouble that we face. And God's disciplining of his people was common throughout the Old Testament. In fact, it's the preamble of the Ten Commandments that contains the words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This statement asserts asserts that the whole covenant between God and his people is based on his grace and goodness. Throughout the Old Testament, we see that the Israelites continue to be oppressed, exiled from the promised land, attacked and defeated several times. How can the same loving God that heard their prayer and rescued them from the persecution and slavery in Egypt, you know, the same God that gave them a land and nation of their own, how can he allow all these things to happen? Isn't that a violation of the covenant that God made with them? Well, scholars call this the Deuteronomic cycle. This theology states that the people become unfaithful and they broke the covenant. You know, we saw it with the the calf, right? They they worshiped the calf and and they married people outside of, of their area, other, you know, which they were commanded not to do. And they started worshiping their gods. And this leads to troubles that befall them, right? Captivity and, and um, removal from their land. And then at some point, the people realize their predicament. And they cry out to God. They said, God, deliver us. God is faithful. He hears their prayers. And he raises up a leader to rescue them. And their faith is restored. They become a blessed people again. And the covenant is kept. 
But this happens time after time throughout biblical history. Abraham and Moses, Saul, David, and Solomon are just a few of the people that God uses again to rescue his people when they've gone astray. The hope that comes from this theology is that God never breaks his covenant. In fact, he honors it. If you do this, then I will do that. And when they broke it, he had to let things happen. That's what a good father, a good judge does. There's discipline, there's consequences for our actions. But he continues to love and to watch over and hear his people. And we are the ones that violate this covenant. But he waits patiently and it restores us time after time after time. This characteristic of God continues to be revealed throughout all scripture, including the New Testament. And, and we're all familiar with verses like God speaking to King Solomon. This is found in 2 Chronicles 7.14. He says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and heal their land. Now he's speaking quite literally in the case of healing their land. And 2 Peter 3.9, we're reminded that he is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but wanting everyone to come to repentance. He's ready to keep the covenant that he cannot and will not break. And if the Bible taken in context does not contradict itself, then why do bad things happen to people who have not broken the covenant with God? There must be another reason why these things happen. And perhaps these are means of testing or exposing a person's faith. And let's, let's look at a story of two people. First, Peter, and then the obvious, which is Job. During the same meal that I referred to earlier, when Jesus was speaking to his disciples, we find the story of Peter's interaction with Jesus. This starts in John 13, beginning at verse 33. He says, My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. And then he says, a new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. But Simon Peter asked him, he says, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, where am I, where I am going? You cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter said, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Now, this was a shock to Peter. Peter is the rock. That's why his name became Peter, which means rock. The rock that Jesus said he would build the church on. Right? And so this was a surprise to Peter. Like, there's no way that this can be right. I would never do that. But if we go to John 8, 15, we hear this. This is Peter's first denial. It says, Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. Now skipping ahead to verse 25, we find Peter's second and third denials. It says, meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warning, warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? And he denied it again saying, I am not. 
one of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Now, the biblical account does not specifically describe Peter's expression at this point. But the movie, The Passion of the Christ, captures it well. It's a look of horror as he realizes in the face of trouble, he had abandoned or at least denied his faith, something he thought he would never do. But in the face of oppression, the face of tribulation, he did three times. Now, Peter went on to continue Jesus' ministry, including the establishment of the church. His account, along with that of Paul's, is recorded in the book of Acts, which we are currently discussing during our Sunday morning Bible study time. And when it comes to questioning why bad things happen to God's people, no story is more than that than that of Job. Reading from the book of the same Naon, I start at verse 1. It says, In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. Now, I want to point out he was blameless and upright, feared God and shunned evil. In fact, other translations call him righteous. So this man had, had it going right. But then it describes all the things he had, and that's for purpose. But in verse 4, it says, His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And this was Job's regular custom. See, he was so in tune with God that even his children, just in case they might have done something wrong, I'm going to set this right with God. So that kind of establishes who Job is. And as a show of Job's faith, God allowed several horrible things to happen to him. He lost his children. He lost all of his land, the money, the livestock, all the property, everything that I just listed for you from Scripture. And he was so despondent at one point that he, he shaved his head, he tore his clothes, and Scripture says that he just heaped ashes upon himself. At one point, he even cursed the day that he was born. That's how despondent this man had become. Now imagine being one of his friends and seeing this wealthy, blessed, godly man become what they were seeing in front of them. They encouraged him to denounce God. Job would not do it. Multiple times they came to him, and you can read it in the book of Job, and he would not do it. There are three times that Job questions God about what's happened to him, and here's just a few excerpts. Job 7, 17 through 21, it says, What is mankind that you make so much of them, that you give them so much attention, that you examine them every morning and test them every moment? Will you never look away from me or let me alone for even an instant? If I have sinned, what have I done to you? You who see everything we do, why have you made me your target? Why have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my offenses and forgive my sins? He's struggling with this, and this is okay. Job 10, 2-3, I say to you, God, do not declare me guilty, but tell me what charges you have against me. Does it please you to oppress me, to spurn the work of your hands while you smile on the plans of the wicked? Anybody ever feel like that? Lastly, Job 13, 23. How many wrongs and sins have I committed? Show me my offense and my sin. Why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? 
but he never gives up his faith. He certainly questions God, but he never gives up on knowing who he is. But in Job 38 through 41, so multiple chapters, we find God's response. And it's a long one. I'm not going to read it, but, but he explains the complexity of design. He talks about everything that God has created and how it works and works together, every detail, and how he understands and knows every aspect of this creation. And he says not only the complexity of design, but he also states that he is intimately aware of every detail at all times. And he helps Job realize that not only does Job not comprehend all this, but Job is not able to comprehend any of this. So is it possible that the troubles that we face are part of a larger plan that we cannot possibly comprehend? If so, then we must lean on God during these times and persevere. And this, friends, is called faith. In Job 42, 10 through 17, we read this. This is the response. It says, after Job had prayed for his friends, because remember his friends had had said, rebuke God, and and now he's praying for his friends. He says, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over the trouble the Lord had brought on him, and each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. The Lord blessed the latter part of Jacob's life more than the former part. And it talked about in numbers how many things he had and how he had children. And then at the end it says, after this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And so Job died, an old man and full of years. Now the story and lesson of Job supports the verse that I lean on personally during times of trouble. And this is James 1, 2 through 4. James 1, 2 through 4. It says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And here's a kicker. It says, let perseverance finish its work so you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. It's not that God's not looking out for you in times of trouble, but he may also be using you as a piece of his larger plan, his greater purpose, which will prove to be good. Now, during the last Sunday morning message series, I made several references to the story of Joseph. And just a high-level recap, Joseph was sold by his brothers who were jealous of him into slavery, and he worked his way up in the land, and he became the second most powerful person. And in times of famine, he was actually able to save the lives of his brothers, the ones that had betrayed him. And I love this verse from Genesis 50, 20. It says, you intended to harm me. As he forgives his brothers, he says this, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done. There are times when the troubles and tribulations and oppression and all that are serving a purpose that you are a part of that may not necessarily be for your own good, but for God's good use. Final example this morning is the story of David. David is a Bible character who is no stranger to hard times. He was anointed king of Israel, right? Placed in a high place by God himself. And yet he was also tormented by the jealous King Saul, who chased David for many years trying to kill him. Just listen to this passage from 1 Samuel 18, beginning at verse 5. It says, Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a higher rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the woman came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing. 
with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David is tens of thousands. Now, Bible tells us that Saul is a very tall man, a man of not only great importance, but great stature. And he was used to being an important man. He had a bit of pride going on. So when you hear people go, yay, you slayed thousands. And then you hear, but yay, more. This guy slayed tens of thousands. Verse 8 says, Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with more or with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God forcefully came on Saul, and he was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to that wall. But David eluded him twice. Imagine this, just King Saul is doing this thing, and David just playing, you know, we call it the harp. You know, he's playing music, right? just serving in the kingdom. And all of a sudden the king throws a spear at you twice and you dodge it. And that really set the stage for the fleeing that Dave spent many years just to avoid being captured and killed. And so the Bible tells us that David grew increasingly frustrated from his constant running and hiding, right? God said, you are the king. I have anointed you, but he's living in caves and he's, and he's surviving on whatever food his men could find and, and, those who were loyal to him would give him. And many of the Psalms that we read highlight cries to David, uh, to God from David and struggles, such as Psalm 142. It says, I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out before him my complaint. Before him I tell my trouble. Now, even though King David struggled mightily with his faith, he never remained in the state for long as he concludes every song praising God and giving God glory. And I want to just take the last few minutes of the message to share a couple worldly examples. The first is a segment from this year's Mayor's Prayer Breakfast, and that's something I, I love attending. The, basically, all the mayors of the, in the greater Kansas City are come together on the National Day of Prayer, and they literally each pray for various aspects of the community and the world. And it's a great place to be. And in my uh, Monday through Friday employer um, is a great sponsor of this event and they get to send me and I, I love it. Um, and this year we had to do it virtually. And that they have the guest speaker this year was Dayton Moore. Now Dayton Moore is the general manager of the Kansas City Royals. And he gives a fairly lengthy speech, what we won't watch, but there's, he's making several points. And I wanna come in here when he talks about the eye of the storm. Calm in the eye of the storm. Now, I don't know about you, but this one's a little more difficult for me. Serenity and calmness aren't necessarily a part of my DNA. But as I have went through life and relied on Scripture, I've understood the importance of taking things to God first in prayer before I start seeking counsel from others. And then I have understood who are those individuals that have earned the right to speak into my life to give me that wise counsel. But one of the greatest examples I've seen of being calm in the eye of the storm is from our all-star and gold glove and recently retired outfielder, Alex Gordon. His 14-year career took him through many twists and turns. He didn't break into the major leagues the way everybody expected. He had lots of ups and downs. And after his third year, we went to him in Tampa 
where our team was playing, and we said, Alex, look, we're going to need to send you down to AAA. We're sending you to the minor leagues. And by the way, Alex, we're going to ask you to change positions. See, we've got this young player by the name of Mike Moustakis. He's going to be our third baseman next year. And so how do you think Alex responded? How would you respond? Well, I can tell you how most players respond when they're given that type of news. They're being demoted. They're being cut. They're being released. They're asked to do something they don't want to do. Oftentimes, they respond by saying, hey, look, why don't you just trade me? The hitting coach isn't helping me. The manager's not very good. And by the way, you as the general manager, you're not doing a very good job either. The owner's not spending money. No, that's not how Alex responded. See, Alex responded the way the very best leaders in the history of our country respond. They accepted that decision, that circumstance, that event, as if it was the best thing to ever happen to them. He used that challenge to mold him and shape him. He accepted it. He went to the minor leagues. He didn't wait 72 hours. He went to work right away. And because he handled it in a very meaningful way, in an accepting way, embracing that hurt, he became a gold glove winner, a two-time American League champion, a world champion, a three-time all-star, and a 14-year career that he can reflect back on in a very meaningful and proud way. He remained calm in the eye of the storm. You guys who are familiar with the Royals can really understand what that, but I really like what he said about, you know, he was faced with this challenge, really almost an insult, right? A, a demotion, all that. And he said he went to work right away. He accepted it as if it was the best thing that could happen. So I want to challenge you with whatever trouble comes your way to accept that as if it's the greatest thing that could ever happen and use it. I want to show you one more video. And this is, this is from the movie called Facing the Giants. Now, the producers of this movie include uh, also the movies like Fireproof and Courageous and War Room. Fantastic movies with messages. And I want to encourage you to watch these. But without too much introduction, let's just watch this scene from Facing the Giants. So, Coach, how strong is Westview this year? A lot stronger than we are. You already written Friday night down as a loss, Brock? Well, not if I know we could beat them. Come here, Brock. You too, Jeremy. What, am I in trouble now? Not yet. I want to see you do the death crawl again, except I want to see your absolute best. <laughs> what, you want me to go to the 30? I think you can go to the 50. <laughs> 50? I can go to the 50 if nobody's on my back. I think you can do it with Jeremy on your back. But even if you can, I want you to promise me you're going to do your best. All right. Your best. Okay. You going to give me your best? I'm going to give you my best. All right, one more thing. I want you to do it blindfolded. Why? Because I want you giving up at a certain point when you can go further. Get down. Jeremy, get on his back. Get a good tight hold, Jeremy. All right. Let's go, Brock. Keep your knees off the ground. Just your hands and feet. There you go. A little bit left. A little bit left. There you go. Show me good effort. 
Keep moving, Brock. That's it. That's it. That's it. Keep going. I want everything you got. Come on, keep going. It hurts. Don't quit on me. Your very best. Keep driving. Keep driving. There you go. There you go. He's heavy. I know he's heavy. I'm bad out of strength. Then you negotiate with your body to find more strength, but don't you give up on me, Brock. You keep going, you hear me? You keep going. You're doing good. You keep going. Do not quit on me. You keep going. It hurts. I know it hurts. You keep going. You keep going. It's all hard from here. 30 more steps. You keep going, Brock. Come on. Keep going. Burn. And let it burn. It's all hard. You keep going, Brock. Come on. Come on. Keep going. You promised me your best. that a little bit especially as anybody listening online can't see it he put another person on his back and covered his eyes and he said i think you can go all the way to 50 and he put the blindfold on him saying i don't want you giving up you know when you think you that's you're far enough and he made it the whole way all the way to the other end A few weeks ago, I shared a message titled, Who Are You in His Story? And we looked at parables and biblical histories from various points of view in addition to the main character. And let's take that approach to this movie scene we just watched. When you have the weight of your problems on your back, you're going to want to quit. On your best days, you're going to just get only as far as you need to. But God needs you to get to the goal line in every aspect of your life, your spiritual life, your family life, and all the roles and responsibilities you have in both. And we want so desperately to know why we are facing the situations that we are. We want to know how much longer or further we must endure this, and we want to give up. But you have someone there with you, encouraging you, telling you to take one more step, and then another, and then another. And he hears your cries and he says, I know it hurts. Just keep going. One more than another. And in the background, the cheers of the heavenly hosts are standing up, watching intently and cheering you on, even though you can focus on nothing more than the pain you are feeling. When it's all done and God says you can quit and you can remove whatever it was that kept you from seeing your goal, you will see that you have made it and you hear the words that we all long to hear from 2 Timothy 4, 7 through 8. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, 
which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to also all who have longed for his appearing. That's what he's doing. Do you sometimes feel like the guy just dragging that weight? And if you knew how much further it was, you might quit when you could actually go further. Or, or maybe you think it's something insurmountable. That's why so many times we don't know God's plan, right? It's probably better than we can imagine, or we don't think we deserve it, or we don't think we can get there or do this or that. So trust the one that's in your ear saying, go on one more, one more, it's all heart. You've got this. And if you need that the crowd of cheerleaders there, you've got them in this church. And if you need a physical voice in your ear saying you can do this, call me. That's what I want to be for you. But never do any of this alone, okay? Let's make that our prayer this morning. Let's pray. Father God, just as you promised, we will have troubles in this life. And Lord, it has been delivered. We see problems of all kinds in this world. Lord, we don't fully understand the complexity of your creation. And it's not ours to understand. So we rely on you in full hope and full faith that you've got this. So Lord, let us be open to the challenges you put before us, accepting of the the troubles we face, and looking at them as if they're the best thing that could happen because, Lord, they're a part of a plan that is the best thing that could happen. God, forgive our doubts. Forgive us our, our hesitancy. And open our eyes, not to the purpose, but to the opportunities to serve you and others. Lord, this morning as we take communion, let us realize that we don't have to have it all together to be in communion with you. We are just making that decision right here and right now to let you into our hearts. Lord, I thank you as always for this church, all those here this morning in person or listening online, those who've come before that have provided this building and this place and this opportunity to worship you as we do. We thank you for who you are, the amazing gift of your son, and we pray in his holy name.